RA Exchange. Hey, welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange. I'm Chloe Lula, the Exchange's senior producer. Today, I'm pleased to welcome Juliana Huxtable to the show, a multi-talented artist based between New York and Berlin whose work spans DJing, production, writing, visual art, and more. I first got to know Juliana as a DJ. She's the co-founder of the New York party Shock Value, and she's a regular at Berghain, Herrensauna, Basement, and more clubs and festivals around the world. She plays a range of music that crosses the gamut from techno to industrial, club, classical, spoken word, and pretty much everything in between. But music aside, the impetus behind her conversation was to talk about her multimedia show called Ossiphilia, which is on display through the beginning of January in Berlin. A champion of queer and trans theory, Juliana uses collage, painting, and poetry to explore themes around identity anarchy and sexuality throughout the show. While it's serious and somewhat academic, it's also playful, just like Juliana, diving deep into fantasy, psychedelia, and soft porn. Of all the things that I feel like I'm good at making art do is engender a sense of pleasure, play, asking questions, and humor, as I'm also humor and play as a means to other things. And so if I want to express an idea or raise a set of questions that just addressing those questions themselves in language doesn't do it, humor is a way to draw people in. And I think it just makes art active. And I think it makes what is oftentimes, especially right now, a kind of like dead cultural space very alive. The exhibition features a lot of Juliana's original poetry, a craft she pursues in parallel with her work as a DJ and musician. We talked about how writing and not music is actually the art form that comes most intuitively for her, and that she loves to engage in language play. Moving to New York from her hometown of College Station, Texas, writing was her first entry point into the music world. In our interview, she told me that she wrote blog posts responding to her favorite DJ's mixes before starting to make any of her own. These days, she likes to dabble in other kinds of art as well, including performance art, which she says is ghettoized, usually relegated to awkward programming, add-ons, and gallery exhibitions. But Juliana is bringing performance art to the club music context with her band Tongue in the Mind, which is coming out with their debut EP on Pan before the end of the year. We actually chatted right on the heels of her appearance at the Pan party at Berghain a few weeks ago. You can hear their first single, Pretty Canary, at the end of this episode. Juliana is one of few artists I know who excels in so many different mediums and artistic avenues simultaneously, without fear of losing a core audience, sound, or fan base. When she explains to me at one point in our conversation that she also aspires to take on sculpture and fashion design in the next few years, I believe her. Thanks so much for listening. Without further ado, here is the one and only Juliana Huxtable. Hello, Juliana. Hello. Thank you so much for being here. You just played Berghain on Friday for the pant night. How was that? That ended up being really fun. Um, I was sort of in a weird place emotionally just with everything that's going on. And so um, I got there sort of being like, oh, I hope that I can find a way for this to feel um, 
cathartic or like a channel for things people are feeling, which can, I, a lot of people I know are feeling very heavy. And it ended up, it, I, I ended up feeling that. Mm. Um, at least partially, which was which was cool. Mm. Yeah, I was listening to a recent interview you did where you said Bergheim especially, but just going out and being on the dance floor is super cathartic for you and like a very central part of your just like mental health upkeep. For sure. Yeah. For yeah. sure. Um, and it's different playing. I think sometimes playing, I mean... DJing, especially this year in particular, it's like every time I play, I end up being surprised in a good way where it's like sometimes I'm traveling and I haven't slept or like the perpetual flight delays that are always happening now. And so it's like I'm sleep deprived. I'm like forcing myself out of a nap in the middle of oh almost a rim cycle. And then I get to the club and actually DJing has time and again been mm. such a beautiful kind of cathartic thing oh, um, in my life. Yeah. So you played for the Pan Night and you have an EP that's coming out mm -hmm. on Pan. It is with a trio you're a part of called Tongue in My Mind. Tongue with, in My Mind. <laughs> with, <laughs> with Via App and Jealous Orgasm. And it's a very different style than I've heard you play publicly before. You get Bridges kind of art rock and performance art. Can you tell me a little bit about the release and also about your roots with the group? Because you were just telling me before we started the interview that you kind of, you go way back. Yes. Um, so I think, I mean, with almost everything I, I've, I've done, because I stopped most of my artistic pursuits when I was in university, um, I think that I've had like imposter syndrome with a lot of things and sort of just like found myself almost like, oh, like unbeknownst to me, I've just been doing art this the whole time or for years. Um, and Joe and I started, Joe and I, Joe is Jealous Orgasm, we started doing performance art together um, because he was really encouraging of me to collaborate. Um, and I was doing performance art on my own where I would make like soundscapes. I would use a lot of samples um, and manipulate my voice and use poetry or text that I had written, video, kind of just like body provocation. Um, and so Joe, when Joe and I started working together, it was me on vocals using writing that I've done and also resampling my writing. Um, and then Joe would drum and then sometimes do piano. And that kind of grew as I started doing more and more performances, like Joe and I continued to work together. And then um, we've also like, I had worked with various musicians over the course of my like performance art, early performance art kind of trajectory. And really like music was always a part of the performance and almost without thinking of it as like a kind of opportunity to draft and just experiment in music. I think that's really what it was in a lot of ways. It was also text, video, other things, whatever, but it really was, music was a central part of it. And so at a certain point, Joe, it was J me, Joe, and then also someone who will be on, there's a song on the album that um, I've asked her to join us again, but Aya Simone, she's a harpist. Um, it was Joe, Aya, and I for, I guess, I want to say like three years we toured together. Um, 
And so it was through kind of like what's considered performance art, our performance art circles, that the actual musicality of what we were doing was able to just expand and grow. Joe's a musician with like insane chops. He's like a chamber music composer, virtuosic guitar player, has played in metal band, punk punk bands, indie bands. He's done everything. Um, But especially for me, I was able to understand uh, my my voice primarily. But then I got into production um, and my sort of like experience and knowledge from DJ. Obviously, it's like super helpful um, to be able to just apply that into production. And so really it just evolved and we started touring at a certain point just as a musical act but a musical act that you play one show someone sees the show they're like that was sick we're gonna book you for another thing and so we were kind of just like on the road um and so even though the current iteration of the band is new to a lot of people it's really been something that's been like an essential part of my light creative life for a while um And so at one point, uh, Joe and I started, we came together to start, um, we did this residency in London to start working on music and, uh, and really like music as something that we would release, not just as something that we play live. Um, We made Pretty Canary together, Joe and I, my friend Matthias did some additional production. And then Dylan, who via app is like a friend Um, We knew we wanted to expand it because it was a little bit musical chairs with the two of us. It's like, I'm on the drum pad and doing vocals and cueing the backing track and Joe's like playing piano. And so um, even though we are all uh, musical polyglots in one sense or another, it really just felt natural to bring Dylan in. Um, And the stuff that we've made together has really been, I'm so excited for it to come out. Um, And it's nice to now just be like a band. A band proper that's uh, releasing music. Bill's been a friend, um, friends of all of us for a long time. Um, And so it just, it really just made sense. And I just like played um, our demo for Bill one day. And he was like, sick, let's do it. Um, And so that's how that started. And the name is from a lyric um, in a song called Key and String that's on the EP that what about it makes it a performance art project i wouldn't categorize it as a performance art project at this point i really enjoy it just being a musical act Mm -hmm. it's like a band it always has elements of performance art but truly anything that's kind of time-based durational that's about the kind of IRL experience of like presence Mm -hmm. and duration is is performance art and I think for me music is and and the space that music holds culturally both as something that you listen to as like an as like a commodity but also as like an a live experience really holds um a space in the popular imagination that makes it some of the most interesting places to do performance art. And so I now think of it, I'm happy to be free of the performance art label because like when you're just doing performance art, it's like, it's like, do I want to play in the museum foyer again? I don't know. (laughs) Like, sure. Like if it fits, but there's a lot of gigs that we were doing that it's like really excited, (laughs) really excited to like escape this context because it can feel a little bit like you're chained to the art context, which, um, I think is increasingly, at least in terms of performance art, is frustrating. Performance art is ghettoized within the art 
context. At, it's at the bottom of the art hierarchy for most people. The funding isn't there. It's like people, it's like museums come up with exhibition schedules and then they're like, okay, what's the programming that we're going to throw on that to, that fits? And and so performance is often an afterthought. It's nice to do music because what you do it, what you're doing, and the labor and energy and love and dedication you bring to the craft can be recognized as such by in the audience. And so it's nice to just be um, in a musical context. Yeah, but that's it's cool. arty, you know. <laughs> We're all already. Because <laughs> as somebody who is mostly, like I'm, I'm very well acquaint, acquainted with nightlife, club culture, and I think of that as being so distant from anything related to performance art. And in New York, I think everything is more kind of like, mm. it's a very, everything enters the washing machine of art Yeah. yeah. in New York. Um, I saw the music video for Pretty Canary in your show, which is on right now, called Ossiphilia. Am I saying Ossiphilia? Okay. So I actually went to see that yesterday, and it's it's very cool. And I wanted to talk about it a little bit because it's on display for, I think, a couple more months. Mm -hmm. I wanted to start with the title of the show. It's taken from the American Dialectical Society's Word of the Year in 2022. So can you explain a little bit the significance of the title and also just frame the show a little bit and how what the project you're doing now fits within that framework I liked the idea I mean I'm I I I love language as someone that I think writing is the thing that writing is the primary way that most of my ideas uh come to fruition is is through words and language um I think it also just requires the least resources for some people maybe that would be drawing um, and I draw sometimes, but uh, writing and language is really the the thing that comes most intuitively. And so I love language play um, and especially the way that in kind of like urban centers, the, the combination of like the density of urban experience with the kind of cosmopolitanism and plurality of different influences with uh online culture i think we're in an era where language is just so fun so many things are happening every city has these like microcosmic um slang universes that come out and i am particularly interested in and participate in advancing like i i think that um that's one thing i i love about my friends we have our own like we can have a whole conversation um that most english-speaking people would have no clue what we're talking about um, but I really loved the the idea of ossification um, and the, it's like thrissy, bussy, tussy, lussy, nussy, like anything can be like, like, like an ussy, dolphussy is something like my friends, um, my friends will, will say, like if someone's like, um, gets like a Brazilian or something. It's like, yo, you're, you, now you have a dolphussy because it's so smooth. Um, but it's just really... <laughs> There's a joy and play in that. And I also like the the idea of making an orifice out of everything. Mm-hmm. I think in, in so much of my art, it's um, especially the, the art that I'm making around interspecies stuff. It's sort of like the joy of uh, the joy of bodily manipulation, the joy of hybridization, like Anything can be a hole, anything can be uh, like fingers, <laughs> things that extend from the body, like not an orifice, but uh, 
extension. I'm just going to say extension because I'm yeah. blanking out on that word, even though that's one of my favorite words. I'm a little bit embarrassed that I can't remember that. But um, all I can think of is like tentacle or something. But I know I think a tentacle would be an example of yeah, the genre yeah, yeah. of yes. um, like bodily form. Yeah. But um, there's like a joy that I think I'm trying to explore, and I think that in the era, a sort of like a counterpart to the introduction of just like transness as the ability to like modify your body make radical interventions in your body um but also just the era of kind of like surgical modifications in general there's the body is no longer this like for a lot of people at least isn't this like pure form that like can't be touched whether it's just like on a kind of ornamental level through piercings and tattoos or through like really extreme surgical like biomorphism there's like a joy and a play there Mm -hmm. And so I felt like ussiphilia, like the idea of like a manic fixation on the the ussie, the idea of the ussie and the ussification of the body, of language, of different forms, um, I think describes a kind of both the mania of, of my artwork, because I think it is kind of manic, but also the play and the joy um, in a, a gendered sense that I try to access through um or depict um, or capture and in, in my artwork. Mm. No, it definitely comes across in the exhibition. When I walked in and I was reading the description, there are all these references to critical theory, and I was like, oh no. <laughs> but, then, <laughs> but then walking through, it's just really light and playful. There's a lot of color. There are a few different portraits of you where you overlay yourself with, I guess they're paintings of these hybrid animals, like snake bacteria, seahorse creatures. (laughs) Yeah, and there's a lot of color. And then my favorite was you were in some, it looks like a Berlin Altbau bathroom or something like that. It looks kind of derelict, but then you're striking this pose by the window and you have this tail that's almost like a centipede tail. And it's like playing with this dichotomy almost. I actually made that here. It was literally a Berlin (laughs) kind of like a sort of it was a derelict bathroom <laughs> in an old, an old um, Mitta building. Okay. Yeah, so what role does humor play in your work? I mean, both in your visual art, but then maybe in also in other art forms that you you practice. I mean, play is, I, I feel like play is so important to me um, in the sense that, like, I think that there's a kind of play inherent in something like poetry. Um, I think, like, metaphor allegory like sort of like illusion suggestions are all forms of like language play if if the opposite of play is just like direct representation where it's like a dog is a dog as you understand your personal dog if like there's like the the kind of collapse of that gap is the opposite of play then play is really important to me um and humor especially um because i think right now particularly visual art, has a really hard time. It's hard to justify a lot of visual art um, as like a culturally relevant um, enterprise. I think a lot of art is just like an asset economy for wealthy people surrounded by a bunch of discourse that has no relationship to the work itself. And so play is something active and humor is something active and it can strike things in people that are free from the kind of like discursive prison that art um the critical art lens puts things under not that i don't 
also enjoy a critical art lens and reading about art history and all of that. But to me, art needs to do something. Um, and of all the things that I feel like I'm good at making art do is engender a sense of pleasure, play, asking questions and humor as I'm also humor and play as a means to other things. Mm -hmm. And so if I want to express an idea or raise a set of questions that, um, just addressing those questions themselves and language doesn't do it. Humor is a way to draw people in. And I think it just makes art active. And I think it makes um, what is oftentimes, especially right now, a kind of like dead cultural space, um, very alive. I, I did want to ask, I thought that I saw allusions to the Cheshire cat and like to Alice in Wonderland. Was that an, a reference that I was picking up or um, did I, was so, I over reading? <laughs> I mean, it's it to the degree that I fantasy fantasy is that very important to me um and i loved alice in wonderland as a kid it wasn't an explicit reference although coincidentally in my kind of just like research leading up to the show there is this um which is also kind of uh where i got the the the, the philia the fixation with philia from there's this like um he's like a literary theorist kind of like philosophy thinker who um wrote a book on kind of like he he fixates on like altered like psychological states and both how they're described med medically but also as opportunities to think about approaches to uh language approaches to um ways of interpreting art and so he writes about like states of states of mania but also about fantasy and i became like fixated on i became fixated on him um because I also am just like, I'm always interested in like, like the language around psychoanalysis or the DSM, like different kind of DSM personality disorder categories to me are, are really interesting, not as like literal, like diagnoses of problems mm -hmm. in people, but as kind of like metaphors to engage like different ways, different ways of approaching being or making. And he actually talked about Alice in Wonderland mm -hmm. and sort of described like the basic components of fantasy and part of one of the essential elements of fantasy being the, the dissolution of per the perception of yourself and the dissolution of the ego through kind of distortion. And so I actually was reading about Alice in Wonderland, like the, the sort of like constant things are getting bigger and then getting mm. smaller. And then like, you're falling down this tunnel at a really rapid place, but then the like teacup and the plate is like, like sitting in front of you. And so I ended up reading, going back, I just recently reread um, Alice in Wonder. I got the like annotated version of Alice in Wonderland that has all of the like, sort of like historical illusions and descriptions and stuff. Um, and so I am, I do, I love, I do love the Cheshire Cat. Mm. Um, unfortunately, the like, I mean, this doesn't take away the joy of Alice in Wonderland, but the guy who wrote it is actually a really extreme pedophile. Oh, really? And I did, Alice I did is not based know that. off of, so he was like a math teacher okay. at a private school, I think in Cambridge. And he was in love with one of his, I think one of his cohort's daughter. Ooh, <laughs> I don't want to take photos of her. The parents had to take her away from him. And he like changed some features about her, but Alice was a real person that he was that? fixated on. So there's like a kind of edgy, the Alice in Wonderland angle is kind of edgy, but um, I do love the book. I do think it's, it's, it's a cool book. Okay. And I'm not a throw the art out with the artist. Throw, like okay. once the artist is like plagued, it's, I mean, it, 
Unfortunately, there's like an irremovable stain on the art, but I still love Alison Wonderland. Yeah. Um, I was reading about how you're really interested in this idea of identity anarchy and in playing with this relationship between humans and animals. It's like on one hand, you are, I think maybe it was an art forum essay that you wrote. I think this is what I read. You you said that you were interested in interrogating how, especially like right-wing people will, when same-sex marriage comes up, they'll be like, oh, what's next? Like bestiality. So it's interrogating that. But it also called to mind for me how a lot of religions, like in Hinduism, all the gods and goddesses are half animal, half, yeah. half person. So yeah, it was uh, it conjured a lot of dichotomies for me. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Another thing I noticed in the show is it plays with tropes that seem to seep through your work. In other forms, especially in your writing, you use a lot of references to psychedelics and to sex and sexual perversity. Could you discuss a little bit the the place that these themes take up in your work? I think that, I mean, psychedelics have just been really important in my life. Um, I I was late to psychedelics. I think a lot of people started them when they were really young. Like I, I didn't have my first acid trip until I was like, I think like 22 years old was okay. the first time that I tripped on acid. And it was such a paradigm shifting experience for me. Um, I've also had just, I've had really foundational and transformative experiences on psychedelics. Some just in the in, in the range of like mu- mushrooms, salvia, um, acid, 2CB, like that sort of that sort of uh, spectrum of psychedelic. But then also I've had really like very deep, profound experiences with things like um, ayahuasca. And psychedelics have been a way have been an opportunity for me to think about the the kind of construction of the self, the like both the like absurdity of identity, but also opening up identity to something that's a bit more playful. Um, I remember the first time I did acid, which is I, so I'm, I have this long poem that was, um, that part of it is on the wall in the show. Um, Cause I remember the first time I tripped, I was in my hometown in College Station, Texas. And everyone was like, don't play with animals. Animals freak out when you when they engage with humans that are tripping it's not good and it it was like such an intense oh okay disciplinary boundary and I, and it instilled a lot of fear around me and i was like but why like why would being in this open state be uh antagonistic towards all non-human life it was so weird to me um but i think it said something about what people think about open states and like the fear that we attach to like other forms mm. of or that a lot of people attach um and it was so funny because like maybe like two hours into tripping my friend Jade's dog immediately when um, he was let out of the cage just like came and like jumped in my lap <laughs> and we were just having so much fun together when we were tripping. And I was like, this makes absolutely no sense. Um, and tripping as something, you know, it's like a sort of like, it's almost like a, at this point, it's like a, a played out trope of like talking to the trees. But I really have had such dynamic experiences with communication, with how I perceive myself, with how I perceive the beginning of myself and the end of other things. I've had, you know, like deeply intense 
even erotic experiences with the tree, just standing in front of a tree or something. And so psychedelics are are have been really central to thinking through our experiences that then inform um, like the the way that I approach play um, or concepts in my art. And obviously being a visual artist, stripping is great. Yeah. It's just like yeah. that's sort of, you know, I, I mean, I'm not going to say universally true. Maybe some people tripping isn't good for them, but tripping has been great in that sense. Yeah. And I paint on acid. You do? Yeah, okay, I paint so on acid. all of your paintings? Not all of them. Okay. I don't know if I could. I mean, I probably could handle that. Like, honestly, I would probably love doing that, but it's just like, it's kind of unhinged generally to be tripping all the time. Yeah. Um, even though I have, I have gone through periods where I, I'm doing acid like four times a week. Really? There are different references to your history throughout the exhibit. You were born in the Bible Belt, right? And you attended a Southern Baptist church. What was it like growing up in this environment? And were you able to already explore all these facets of your identity that you're exploring now in your art while you were growing up in this context? Yeah, Um I think maybe like certain interests I didn't develop, like my interest in psychedelics specifically, my interest in kind of like interspecies stuff. There's a lot of, there's a lot of things that, or like my interest in like sub different subcultures Mm -hmm. um, and kind of like the evolution of subculture in relationship to like political discourses. There's like specific interests that developed as I was older and just had the freedom and also just the knowledge to kind of like delve deep into things in a way that I just didn't have at the time. But I think that for me, like my in, my first encounter with, without having a, a name for it, with, with like a sense of the sublime was in church. Um, I'm so grateful and, 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 you know, so much of how I approach art and art making and music and just like the sensibilities that I have is, is I think indebted to um, a sort of like Southern black uh, Protestant, specifically Baptist culture, because even though it's Christian, it's very different from, um, uh, it's not the same as like American, like white evangelical culture. Politically, it's more left. Um, There's such a long tradition of Southern black Baptist being radical activists um, working with um, coalitions of different groups for like civil rights, okay. reproductive rights, although that's now changing as the influence of like evangelical, white evangelical culture is encroaching in on uh, black churches as like a, a market. But it's really, it was a very rich experience. The language is so rich, the relationship to the Old Testament, mm-hmm. um, and especially like the book of Exodus, the book of Psalms. It's these kind of like exceptional passages of uh, the Bible that are really used as direct allegories for the kind of Black diasporic experience. The music is just like amazing. You kind of start tripping in church. Like I feel like my church growing up, it's like you could trip in church without needing a substance. Like the, the, the sort of collective energy and when you just are like open to questions of like the divine even as someone that pretty early on was like i don't believe in like a anthropomorphic man father god that gets mad at people just being open in that way which i also feel like you can experience in clubs and things like that really you can channel energies that that Mm -hmm. are quite um psychedelic and so moving um and so yeah, it was a it was a cool experience um, growing up. I'm very I think fondly of my church experience. Okay, I think that I 
had assumed that maybe it would be a really repressive environment to grow up in, but it's... I mean, there was some of that, sure. Um, But it's particularly when, like, so there was one pastor that I had when I was really young who was definitely more conservative and the church had, like, there, there, there there was a repressive atmosphere to the church. Like, he was so conservative way more conservative regarding like um the role of women in the church like if you had a child outside of wedlock you would have to like ask for forgiveness in front of the church so there when i was really young um and with that pastor there were aspects of that musically it was amazing and as a community it was still amazing and racially i found it really cool but i was really lucky in that the church pastor switched over i mean i also have a lot of love for that pastor um despite his conservatism sometimes but as I really entered puberty, I think when I was like maybe 13, 12 or 13, we switched pastors um, and we had a radical, he was like really, 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 really radical. Like he was like like a feminist. He was like all of the things you want and 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 a, a, a black Baptist congregation would need in the sense that like he's steeped in the tradition. He knows like how to read the text. He's like knows all the like him like even just like the way he delivers. He's very much so steeped in tradition. But he was politically and and culturally a radical. Um, cool. And he was like kind of one of my number one supporters actually. Wow. Um, and I'm I still talk to him to this I still talk to him and his wife to this day they've seen my art like and Sick. so I was really lucky that I in those formative years I was able to experience a kind of like opening up of the church and a kind of like updating it to mm. the 21st century in a way that that I'm I feel I feel very lucky um, that I was able to be um, in my church at the time that he was oh. overseeing That's awesome. yeah okay. I was curious if approaching the world that you're in, your art, from more of like an outsider perspective, I mean, being from a non-urban area, being from kind of a remote religious community, has it informed your work? Or if it colored your perspective, like when you moved to New York, I mean, that's a pretty big shift. Yeah. Um, I'm, I think it makes me, I just appreciate I appreciate all of the things that cities have to offer so much. You know, I think growing up with this feeling of like existential listlessness and ennui, like you can really get to a place of anxiety. Like, oh my God, like what am I doing? Like, I remember the feeling of like Saturday afternoon when I was a kid and just being like, this is what people want. This is life. And I, it was terrifying to me and so depressing that yeah, people would just sit and watch TV. Mm. I hated that aspect of my hometown. I was like, get me out. I have to get out of here. Um, and so when I got to a city, I knew, I, I mean, I decided when I was like 11 with my best friend, Amy, we like made a pact that we were moving to New York together. We moved to New York within three months of each other. Um, and yeah, I've, I've just, I've never gotten tired of cities. Cities are endlessly interesting to me. I might have periods where I'm like, oh, I need to get, you know, oh, I need to get out of Berlin or like, oh, New York is stressing me out or, but, but in general, I'm, 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 I'm endlessly curious. There's so much to learn. There's so many people. Um, and so I think it's, I think coming from something that, was so, there was such a dearth of culture. Now I really appreciate being um, in a place, places of excess. And I think cities are places of excess. So you moved to New York and 
You mentioned to me that your first creative outlet was really more writing than it was DJing. Because I think I I thought that you had really started out with just having a music career, but you moved to New York and after or while you're still in your day job or leaving your day job, you are writing. So what did that look like, this first foray into your creative pursuits? Um, it started off with blogging. Blogging was really kind of my outlet. And I'd been blogging since I was a kid. Like, um, you know, I've always, I've always, I had like Angel Fire, Live Journal, Zanga, like what blogs, blogspot, like anytime there was a, 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 a blog or kind of like um, free website hosting communities, GeoCities, Angel Fire, I had all of it. And so um, it was really quite natural to me um, to get into blogging and what I loved about blogging and I think what allowed it to be a space for me to experiment is that it's really the boundary between a kind of like cultural consumer, a cultural critic or commentator and a cultural producer. It's really like blurry. And so first I start writing about other things. Like I would write these really kind of like almost like quasi poetic I don't even know what to call it. It's not a review, but like mm-hmm. when someone, my favorite DJs, when they would post a mix, I would write these like long text responses about the mixes. Um, but then those those texts themselves are also kind of stand on their own. And some of those ended up evolving into poems that I then, uh, or texts that ended up in my first book. And so it was just like sharing art that I thought was cool, videos that I thought was cool, research interests. Like I would get fixated on something like, you know, like feminist indigenous art from the American Southwest, you know, I would get these really specific art, like, you know, uh, like uh, Weimar Berlin, Weimar Berlin photography with like descriptions of the history or something, or, you know, a new science, like I would get fix fixated on like a new scientific angle or discovery. Um, and so through sharing those interests and then writing about them, and then I just started writing stuff. Mm-hmm. And even if, and I, what I loved about a blog is you had the safety to not have to think of it as like, I'm publishing writing. You could just write it and put it out. And then it was through other people then recognizing that. And then I started doing readings and then it was kind of just mm-hmm. took off from there. And you're such an incredible multidisciplinarian. Like, I actually don't know that I know very many people who are as successful in so many different creative <laughs> mediums as you are. I mean, you're obviously also a painter, you're, you know, a long form writer, a poet, a DJ, producer, have these different streams of your creative life always existed in parallel? Or do you feel like you're giving more attention to one than the other different points? Or how do you balance everything? Um, I sort of just go with the flow. <laughs> Sometimes certain things take priority over others. Um, I think for several years, visual art was really the central, like I would say like um, 2015 to 2018, 19, it was a lot of visual art. Um, and I really came into my came into myself as an artist and, 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 and as a visual artist in that period. Um, and I still do visual art. I had a, you know, I've, like we talked about earlier, I had that show open this year. I had a show last year in London. Um, I think it feels a little bit more balanced now, although I, right at this moment, it's, there's a, it's very music heavy. Mm. Um, and so I kind of just pick like, 
okay, what are the things that I focus the most on? This year, it's like I had this show and I was like, I want to make the work for the show and then music. And so I didn't do very much writing this year, at least in terms of publishing it. Um, but now that like that show is up, now I'm focusing on music, finishing the album, and then working on my next poetry book, okay. which is going to come out next year okay. around this time. Do you edit your work extensively? Because I find that I'm so perfectionistic about my work that it really attenuates the amount that I put out. But I imagine if you're doing so many different projects at once, maybe it's difficult to be that way. So what is your creative process like? Um, I do like to edit. I think that for me, what I've learned, it's about like conditioning the space and context in which I kind of just like improvise and have to go with it. So this is what I love about like the, the visual art that I do. It's like when I'm shooting myself, like it's like art or other people when I'm painting and then photographing and then editing that and doing all the digital, digital painting, that is a very editing focused process. Mm -hmm. And it used to be that my images, and you can even tell like, like, like the, the, the images I was making around 2015, because they, there wasn't any physical painting, at least after the image, there was physical painting on a body. Those images are super like precise, exact, like, you know, it's like, they're 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 like iconic in a in, in a specific way because they're so clean mm -hmm. and those images are cool and like you know sometimes i'm like okay i want to make more exact images but for me this is what i love about like like painting on top of the images it's like at a certain point i have to cut myself free from the editing because i could edit for forever especially with visual art i could just oh but like let me add another detail here and like oh but like let's manipulate this and i like just being like Deadlines are great for me in that mm. sense. It's like, I'm going to cut the printing off at a certain point, And now we just have this much time. Let's go. And I really love painting. It's almost actually kind of like, I, I realized this when I was painting uh, for this last show. It's almost like it's like a performance spectacle but like no one else is seeing the spectacle it's just like me and like my friends that are in the studio but it's like okay I have to like finish this painting in this amount of time like let's go and I think maybe my inner performance artist comes out in that way um you also mentioned that you like to keep kind of like a strict routine because you have so much work I don't know if that's something you're at liberty to discuss but I love learning about how people yeah. like people who are have a high volume of output and are really serious artists live their lives. Yeah. Um, so what what does your routine usually look um, like? I mean, honestly, for most of my life, I've had no routine. Mm. I'm thankful that I had no routine for most of my life because that's what allowed me to just like fall into just like, oh, well, now I'm going to do this because this is what I'm interested in. And I wake up when I wake up. I go to sleep when I go to sleep. I just do. Um, but this year, there was just, this year was really the first year that I was like, wow, I like just have so much, I have so much stuff to do. I actually have to have a routine, like I have to have a routine. Um, I just like, I, I, I won't be able to finish all of this if I don't. And so I became a morning person. I'm not right now, I'm not an early morning person right now because I'm happily on the other side of all the work of this year, but it was really cool to me to wake up early in the morning for a while. Like I've never been like, no alarm, I'm up by seven, it's crazy. Uh, but I love like, I mean, I'm like a health 
food. I'm like a I'm like a health person in that sense. Um, and so I I like bike everywhere. I like to do yoga. I always start my day with a smoothie, yeah. just because I just feel better. Um, unless I'm having a depressive episode, which I have had a few streaks lately. Where I like wake up and I eat like an impossible burger, <laughs> which is gross, but um, we've all been there. It's okay. They love you. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to talk a little bit also about DJing because I know you first and foremost as a DJ. That was my entry point to your work as someone in the club scene. And like what you do with painting and poetry, you really approach DJing as this artistic practice. Could you talk a little bit about how you play with? a wide range of genres and you make use of cut-ups and samples and mixing techniques. Because I think the RA podcast you did a couple years ago was really illustrative of how you use DJing as an art form. I mean, DJing is like, it's funny because I think I I had like people in my life that had like been in clubbing and stuff when I first started DJing people were like I don't know if you want to do like you might just get stuck in DJing a lot of people think they want to do it and then they end up hating it like make sure and so I I think that um even I've always loved DJing there's been these like voices outside of me that 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 try and suggest that my time would be be better spent doing something else I think a lot of people don't understand that DJing is like really is like an art form I think People just, so many people just think you get up and like press play and like dance while people pull out their iPhones. And it's like, that's just not what's happening. I mean, maybe some people that's what they're doing. But um, I love DJing because it's an endless learning curve. It's an endless learning curve. And there's also an endless set of creative possibilities. Like, how much more of my own music do I want to bring in? How do I make, make my own edits? Like, how, like, like I love when I I just like I got, even on on the a mixer because I do love the the pioneer mixers even though I know that's there's like debates about what <laughs> mixer you should be using but like whatever use whatever mixer you want I don't care um, but I love the pioneer DJM mixers and I really enjoy the experience of discovering the kind of parameters of a new filter even brings me so much joy or when I discover a new way of like playing on like a CDJ like oh my god I can create an insane sound by like looping something really fast and then like dragging a setting the setting the um changing certain setting settings and then putting this filter on and I can create the most insane sound or whatever um but it's like it's the most like geary I think that I get is with DJing. I just like love. I also have CDJs. Um, shout out to my ex boyfriend who bought me <laughs> two C- CDJ two thousands for my birthday. It's a very um, nice present. That was a really nice present. Yeah, he did. He tore that. Um, but DJing is like you can express so much, and you it really can reflect where you're at in life. Like my my the content of what I play has evolved so much over time and pieces of how I play at any given moment always stick with me. But I love that it's also allows for really rapid evolution and synthesis of interests. And so, yeah, the, the, the place where I'm at right now, I just, I, I really love, I've gotten quite fixated on like the technical aspect of DJing. I've always loved that. That's always been an important part um, of, of, of anyone DJing. But I really love, it's almost like a sport or something. It's just like 
like learning how to hear like subtle, like subtle drifts in the mix, something like that. Or like, okay, like if I'm going to have like three tracks playing at the same time, how to like have subtle adjustments in the way that I mix them or the filters that I place on them um, in order to really maximize a really precise sound that is unmistakably like coming from me. Like Mm -hmm. I love... As like as someone who's also like I go out a lot like some DJs just play but they're not partiers like I love to dance I love to go out. It excites me when I can go into a room and be like, wait, this is this person, and someone's sound is so specific I can I can kind of like guess or like their mixing style, and so I really aspire to like exactitude and like an aesthetic that is like unmistakably um, me. Well, this was something I wanted to ask you because you are so eclectic i wonder if you feel that you are missing like a quote-unquote musical calling card but then when i listen to your mixes and then i put that within the context of your poetry and your paintings it makes sense to me that they're all kind of part of the same practice of like remixing symbols and imagery like that is your your calling cards for sure for sure um and also being in berlin there's like a different level of like of career that you can pursue as a dj like um here and i think that being in, in berlin and really falling in love with kind of like techno as a space through which to work through my ideas i i'm also someone that really i respond well to constraint Mm. Um, and so that's also been, that's also been fun for me. It's like, how do I develop my voice within the context of techno is, is, is a specific form of DJ joy and pleasure that I find. And then having other contexts in which I do the, just everything goes like Mm -hmm. there's, there's certain clubs, like, and even it's like changes from club to club. Like, it's like, if I'm playing bear kind, there's like a specific energy that I bring to that or aeroso or something like that are, are the clubs here that are more like techno oriented and I'm being booked as someone who's like, um, within a kind of techno context or basement in New York or something like that. Like there are sets that like, and I love having like, there's the Juliana for that. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole spirally world of techno Juliana that I really love evolving. And then there's other contexts in which I can, like my friend throws a party that I play at least once a year. That's, it's like, it's it's generally themed around like West Indian diaspora. And so I get to, I get to play, I play a lot of like dance hall um, and I play a lot of like jungle and like raga music for those sets, mm-hmm. you know, and then like mix in some of my own, you know, like, oh, like a little bit dimbo or whatever. But there's, I love that I've, there are specific places where I get to explore different assets of my, aspects of my musical identity. And then my party that I throw, sometimes only once or twice a year, Shock everything value. goes. Shock value, everything goes. I You'll hear you could literally hear anything punk classical music yeah. like techno like rap like it's kind of everything okay. um and that has that's a space that i i've reserved for just like anar- that's where the anarchy mm-hmm. comes out there's always that little anarchy but like that's like anarchy with sans context <laughs> and i i love playing that so what do you have on the horizon right now you said you're just wrapping up all of this work you had for this year, you're finishing up this, or 
you're done with the EP for Pan, but that's coming yes, out we're done imminently. With the EP. And I know you're going to perform live in a couple of weeks. Yes. So what's yeah? What's the plan? Um, we have a show. So we have a show at Trauma and like. I guess like a little under three weeks now. Um, we um, tongue in the mind. We have our EP release show at Trauma. Um, the EP will also be coming out, if not before then, uh, shortly after. We'll be playing the whole EP um, at that show. Um, I hope to do another music video, even though like the music videos are like really intense and so stressful to get done. Oh, really? Um, I think the next one I'm going to, it's going to be a little bit more DIY. It was just like, uh, that was so much work, the music video. And I'm really thankful to the amazing director, Hendrik, shout out Hendrik Schneider. Um, He was amazing and made so many things work as they were like falling out, falling apart and falling through. And then our album comes out next year. And then I am, my poetry book, my next poetry book um, will come out. Basically in a year from now. And so I'm now working on all of that. And then through winter, we'll be like editing poems, writing new poems, just like getting all the stuff for the book. It's a good winter activity. Yeah, I love love having a a book to work on. It's great. Do you feel that there's another chapter in your artistic evolution in terms of the, I don't know, the mediums that you're going to explore something you're really excited about right now um I mean I've always wanted to I the things that I know I will do at some point um I want to move to sculpture Hmm. um I want to and I want to I want to learn how to sew like Hmm. At some point in the next, I feel like three years, I'm gonna learn how to sew. Not that I want to be like a fashion designer or do some sort of like careers move, but I would like to be able to actually make clothes because I love clothes mm. and I love fashion so much. Um, and direct up a film wow. or video. I think I I really want to like direct one of the tongue in the mind videos. That'd be cool. Um, yeah. But I just need to learn more. Um, working with Hendrick was great because I I feel like I learned a lot from his process um and he was so generous in including me and like all of the aspects of the video so yeah yeah looking back on your career is there one great lesson that you've learned i guess to trust myself i've like and i've learned now i feel like i trust myself way more than i did before every time i did an art show every time i had a performance every time I really had to do anything that was like creative output, even my book. It's like, I, it was like a cinematic feat just to believe that it was okay. And I think anything that's good, you always have a moment where you're like, I might just be full of shit. I think that's important as an artist to experience, at least for me. It's like, if I just think everything is great and good, that would scare me. Yeah. But I, I, I'm glad that I don't question myself. Like, having a moment where you're like, oh, my God, is this actually all horrible? Am I full of shit? It's different than, like, actually, like, being like, can I do this? Like, is my overall approach and vision and standard um, up to par? Um, I think those are, like, different questions. And I just trust myself a lot more now. And really leaning into that trust allows me to get past like I can be like a procrastinator avoider like avoidance spirals like it's really like hard for me to be like this year was like I'm shocked at how much I was able to do this year because usually I'm really 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 avoidant 
I think leaning into like trusting myself and my instincts and my vision and stuff has been really helpful. Thank you so much for your time. It's great meeting you. Thank you for having and me. And congrats on the show, the EV, the LP, the poetry book, everything you have coming up. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this RE exchange with Juliana Huxtable. The track playing in the outro of the episode is Pretty Canary, the first single from Tongue in the Mind's forthcoming EP on Pan. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to the RE exchange and listen to our full archive of conversations on RA.co or on SoundCloud at RA-exchange. Until next time, take care. Pretty canary, color of cherry in my garden blues. Sipping on sherry, named her Carrie after her screaming hues. After her screaming hues. After her screaming hues. After her screaming hues. Pretty canary, color of cherry. What's up, y'all? Had to pop out my situation because I fell off too hard. Buck cherry and a fucked up tattoo. Gliding down a stripper pole from Walmart, anchored in Gorilla Glue. Mm. Singing to a thing that you ain't heard yet. But you knew when it came on, it was hit or fuck with your head. It took from what you said. It took you to a runaway, and then you knew where you'd been shed. Where you'd been, where you'd be fed. Where you'd been, where you'd be fed. Where you'd been, where you'd be Sherry named her Carrie after her screaming you, after her screaming you, after her screaming you. Shy little Carrie offered a berry. Shy little Carrie offered a berry. Shy little Carrie offered a berry from my bursting blooms with skin so helliotical. Like Terry.